Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, as we contemplate these words, we pray that you would open our ears to them, that you would speak to us now in Christ's name. Amen. You will sometimes hear people refer to the hard sayings of Jesus. Not everything that Jesus says is easy to hear or easy to understand. When you ask yourself, what is it that makes these sayings hard? Oftentimes, it's the, the mystery of what it is he's actually communicating. What, what does he mean here? That's what's hard about it, is that we're not quite sure what he's saying. Other times, the sayings are hard because they're not sentimental, because they're not sugar-coated in the way that, in the popular imagination, we kind of picture Jesus making everything sort of sweet and, and good-sounding. But Jesus, as we encounter him in Scripture, says things that are often challenging and, and difficult. Other times, though, the sayings are hard because of the truth that they reveal. Because if you meditate on these sayings, you start to realize that things don't work the way you think they do. That the world that Jesus is talking about is a different world than the one that we believe that we live in. This is a hard saying. You read these words, and you think about these words, and you see the the shift from blessed are they to blessed are you, making the application especially personal in a way that you might not want. Because what he's saying is, blessed are you when others revile you. Blessed are you when you're persecuted, when people lie about you. What would be really blessed and really happy to hear is that when you follow Christ, people won't lie about you. And you won't be reviled, and you won't be persecuted. That would be a a nice and, and comforting thing for Jesus to say. But instead, he says this hard thing that it's going to happen, that this will take place, and that when it takes place, you are blessed, that this is what happiness consists in. That's a hard way to think about persecution. Difficult for us to contemplate feeling blessed in the midst of persecution. You read the international news, you may know that earlier this month, a group of ISIS-related militants captured a Christian pastor and beheaded him. And to add insult to injury, to further the offense, placed his head in a bag they gave to his wife and instructed her to make the journey to travel and present it to the police to report what they had done. When I read that story, uh, even though I've read many stories about persecution and martyrdom, there was something about that detail, I think, that made it especially um, personal, or I I found I couldn't stop thinking about it, thinking about uh, what it would be like not to be in his position, but in hers, to be given that task to perform, and what that would be like, and whether it would be possible to rejoice and be glad in a moment like that. 
And that was a hard thing to imagine. I think we can read these words and we can kind of glibly imagine a, a happiness in all circumstances. Whether things are going well or things are going badly, I will rejoice. But in that reality, it's hard to imagine how such a task could be performed with joy. As we contemplate Christ's words, he reveals some things to us here about that hard aspect of Christian experience, that there is a blessedness, that there is a joy in the midst of circumstances which seem to argue against it utterly. There is something to be found here. And also, there's something for us to rediscover, us in particular to rediscover, about the comfort that these words offer. It has to do with reward in heaven. Because I will confess that as a Reformed and Presbyterian pastor, when I get to words like reward in heaven, I always want to nuance those things. Because we have a tendency to think that the the gospel of Jesus Christ is that if in this life you profess faith in Christ, that when you die, your soul will leave your body and you will go to live in heaven for eternity. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that those who are in Christ, when they die, the spirit leaves the body and goes to be in the presence of God for a season, not for eternity. Because when Christ returns, bodies will be raised and spirits and bodies will be reunited and we will dwell together in his presence in this new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And because of that, because of the fact that we lose sight of that, whenever Scripture talks about reward in heaven, my, my gut reaction is always to qualify it. Say, but, but don't focus on the immediately after death going to be with God. Focus on the end of all things. Focus on the new creation. But that's not what Jesus does here. He focuses on the, the reward in heaven. The reward in heaven for a reason. Because I think when you are called to endure, what we are sometimes called to endure, you need that reward to cling to. Sure, if, if you live in comfort and satisfaction, contemplating rewards in heaven might, might not be the best thing for you spiritually. It might cultivate in you a, a sense of superiority and entitlement. But when you live in the midst of persecution, when others revile you, when they bear false witness against you, knowing that there will be reward, be a comfort. But we need to start with a little bit of honesty because the story I just told and the reality that Jesus is speaking to is one that we mainly know through stories. None of us, by the standard of the pastor and his wife that I just mentioned, none of us have experienced persecution. Like capital P persecution is not something that we've gone through in our lifetimes. Now I know sometimes we worry about the increasing social costs of being too faithful a Christian, that's real, but that's not quite the same thing as being persecuted, tormented, killed, punished for your faith. The fact of the matter is, sometimes, as Calvin says, God spares our weakness, and the church does go through times, periods of time, when we are not persecuted. We have, again, what Calvin calls a season of leisure and repose from persecution. God gives us a break from this. And we, speaking collectively as the American church, have gotten a break 
from this kind of an experience that used to be normal for the church, we haven't necessarily used this break well. So we should be grateful to God for sparing us, but we should also be clear that God does these things as an accommodation to our weakness. And if we have been spared the worth, it's not because we were somehow worthy of being spared. If anything, it might be the reverse. In these periods of sparing, Calvin says that we should meditate on this doctrine. You may not be actively persecuted, but you should meditate on what the Bible teaches about it and be ready whenever it may be necessary to enter the field. You may not engage in the contest till we have been well prepared. This morning, let's prepare ourselves. Let's think about what it means to be prepared for persecution. Because being prepared for persecution does not mean what you're probably thinking right now. To be prepared for persecution doesn't look anything like what the world thinks of as being prepared for when things go terrible. So we need to talk about how we think about the life that we live right now, because how we think about right now is going to impact and influence the way that we think about the life to come. The way that we think about now will change the way we think about heaven. And Jesus here is teaching us how to think about now and how to think about heaven. So let's start with how to think about now. What Jesus is saying here is that if we endure faithfully in these days, then in the days to come, we will enjoy a reward. That's a good reason to rejoice now, even in the midst of trial, because a reward is coming. So now, these days, now, Jesus says, this is a time for faithfulness. Right now, the way we're meant to live is faithfully. But when we think about heaven, things change. In heaven, the reward of the faithful will be great, Jesus says. Since heaven is where our hopes will be fulfilled, heaven is where our hopes should be focused. If fulfillment is in heaven, then our hopes should be focused there, not here. If you think about that, all that's saying is this is the time for faithfulness. That is the time for fulfillment. And let's keep focused on what time it is. It's a mistake to look for fulfillment now. We live our lives searching for fulfillment now. We're making a mistake because now is the time for faithfulness. If you think about it, this is actually just common sense. There are a lot of areas in life where you already live this way, and you couldn't imagine living differently. I'll talk about a few, and as I give you some examples, you may think of others as well. Um, these are not necessarily things I have firsthand experience of, but fitness. <clears throat> if you work out a lot and you discipline yourself, then you get a reward later. There's a, a saying, I, I don't quite understand it, but no pain, no game. That you are going to endure hard things now in anticipation of a reward that comes later. That's the whole point of that kind of physical discipline. That's also how it works with financial discipline as well, or so I've been told. If you spend now, you will pay later. But if you save now, if you discipline yourself, if you don't buy things that you can't afford, then in the future, you can enjoy a security, a reward, because you've disciplined yourself now. When it was time for discipline, 
You had discipline so that when it was time for reward, you could have reward. That's common sense. But what Jesus is saying is showing us that that common sense is actually written into like the, the cosmic logic of reality. Like the world that we live in now is a time for faithfulness, which is what Christian discipline looks like. Because the world to come is where fulfillment happens. And when we look for fulfillment now, it's like we're just confused about what time it is. Now, oftentimes, we tell ourselves that if we experienced more fulfillment now, then we would be more faithful now. That if God would just give us more of a taste of what is to come, then we would be more faithful to him. But because he hasn't given us enough, it's difficult to be faithful now. But again, that's confusion. There's a character in a Jean-Luc Godard movie who says, to be faithful is to live as if time didn't exist. To be faithful is to live as if time didn't exist. To make a commitment that is not affected by the vicissitudes of daily life, by the sufferings or the blessings of daily life. To live as if none of that matters. To live with a focus, we said last time, on one thing. Will one thing, to serve God faithfully. We live in a culture that aspires to fulfillment and not faithfulness. All around us, what people are dreaming of, what they are at least trying to appear to be living, is what we would call fulfillment. Enjoying your reward in the here and now. As a result, our lives don't prepare us for faithfulness. Our lives prepare us to live a fulfillment that we may never enjoy living the way that we do. As a result, we are prepared to fail in the task of faithfulness. That's why we have to start thinking now the way that Jesus does. Thinking about this life the way Jesus thinks about this life. And to do that, we have to think about the life to come the way that Jesus thinks about the life to come. To think about heaven Jesus' way. Because in Jesus' mind, it doesn't seem to matter what you endure in this life if you endure it for his sake. That what sanctifies it, what elevates it, what makes it worthwhile is that it happens for his sake. That no matter what you suffer, when you suffer it for his sake, that is blessedness. When they revile you, when they persecute you, when they tell lies about you, if it's happening for his sake, that's the key, then you are blessed, and you are enjoying happiness in this life. Now, it makes sense. When you think about things done for Jesus' sake, this is another way of talking about doing things the way Jesus did them. This is the way Jesus lived. When Jesus was reviled, when he was persecuted, when they lied about Jesus. Jesus endured all of it faithfully for your sake. And now in gratitude, we're called to endure all of it faithfully for his sake. And when we do that, we are blessed. That's what he's saying. When it is for my sake, you are blessed. Which means, when it is for my sake, then rejoice and be glad. That's the kicker. When it is for my sake, when you endure these things for Christ's sake, then he calls you rejoice and be glad. And he gives two rationales for this. Why should we rejoice in the midst 
of persecution. The first one is what we talked about already, reward in heaven. Now this, if you think about it, is a radical reorientation of values, that everything that we're taught to live for in this life, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You don't need any of those things, any of the fulfillment that this life promises. You don't need those things. What you need is reward in heaven. And if you live for reward in heaven, then you can endure all things for my sake with joy because your eyes are fixed on future glory. And when you think about Christ's eyes and the way that he lived, everything was fixed on the future, on the work that he was called to do and what that work meant. And he calls us similarly to live with reward in heaven in mind. It doesn't make you a Pharisee. It doesn't make you self-righteous to live with the idea of reward in heaven in mind. Reward in heaven is the motivation that Jesus gives us so that we can endure the opposite of reward right now, that we can endure being reviled and persecuted now. He gives another rationale, which is the example of the prophets. I love that we encounter this in Matthew, especially because Matthew is so steeped in the Old Testament prophets and calls us to mind to think of the example of those prophets. It's always surprising to me to go back to Old Testament history and realize that throughout most of the course of the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, people didn't worship the way they were supposed to be worshiping. Throughout most of the course of Israel, they weren't even worshiping who they were supposed to be worshiping. It was full of disobedience, full of idolatry, and God sent prophets into that. And these prophets, anointed by God to speak the word of God, and the people of God reviled them. They didn't welcome the prophets. They weren't excited. Hey, we've got a new prophet. Cool, let's go hear him. I mean, the kings of Israel in particular moaned in agony every time some new prophet came along because they loved nothing better than a false prophet because the false prophets told them what they wanted to hear. The true prophets, it seemed, never did. Those prophets who spoke the word of God truly, who followed God faithfully, were reviled by the people of God and were tormented and punished. And Jesus uses their example to encourage us. He says, if they persecute you, if they revile you, if they tell lies about you, be comforted. They did the same thing about my prophets. That's exactly what you should expect. In other words, in a weird way, these negative consequences are meant to be validating. The fact that people lie about you, the fact that you're persecuted, means you must be doing something right. Because this is what happens when you follow God faithfully in a fallen world. I mean, the corollary would be, if it's not happening, examine yourself. Don't congratulate yourself if we live without testing, if we live without persecution, if nobody is reviling you or lying about you. Don't be content that you must be making good choices to be a little discontent with that, because it does raise the question, are we doing what we ought to do? We ended on that note to be a little bit of a guilt trip. Once again, we fail to measure up. Once again, we are the worst Christians ever, and that's the reason God doesn't want to test us, because if he did, we would fail. But that's not where we're going to end because that's not really the note that Jesus ends on because Jesus is speaking these words not to give a sobering reality check about how hard it is to be a Christian, 
They're actually saying these things so that we can cling to the real joy that is declared for those who are in Christ. His reward in heaven is a reason for joy right now. Remember, when it is for my sake, then rejoice and be glad. This is why preparing for persecution may not be what you think it is. The challenge for us is not to endure. That's not what we're preparing for. We're not preparing to endure. The challenge is not even to endure faithfully. The challenge is to endure faithfully in joy. That's the hard part. That's why the preparation is required. To rejoice and be glad in the midst of trial. That's what we're called to do, and that's what we need to be preparing for. If we go back to Calvin's words on on the idea that God spares us from persecution and that we should meditate on this doctrine when he gives us the leisure to do so. The reason is that we want to bear and endure faithfully when we're persecuted. Instead, if we're not prepared, we're going to chafe and we're going to fall away. Because oftentimes what happens is people lie about you. They revile you. You are persecuted for your faith. And the result is you stop practicing your faith. You get in trouble for coming to church. You don't go to church. If you get in trouble for for talking about Jesus, you don't talk about Jesus when you're not meant to. You fall away. You're not faithful. You don't endure. You turn your back when things grow difficult because you weren't prepared. There's another way of failing, which is to fight fire with fire. People come at you, you answer back. People revile you, you know, 1%, you hit them with 100% and overwhelm them. You want to see reviling? I'll show you reviling. You'll never revile me again. You're going to lie about me? I'll lie about you. I'll lie about you so hard, you'll never lie about me again. You get the idea. That's what comes naturally to us. I think when you hear, we need to prepare for persecution, that's probably what a lot of you are thinking. If the world is going to come at us, we need to be ready to fight fire with fire. Like, we have to be as ruthless in the cause of truth as they are in the cause of lies, which is another way of failing when tested. And that failure, too, comes from lack of preparation. So if we enjoy leisure and repose, we should meditate on faithful endurance, but that starts with realizing what that faithfulness looks like. What faithful endurance looks like, it's not enduring suffering stoically. Christ hasn't called us when things are tough to grit our teeth and bear it and get through it. Jesus isn't saying, if you follow me, life is going to be hard, But that's okay, because I can make you a hard person who can get through this. Jesus is actually saying things are going to get hard, and when they get hard, I am calling you to be soft. I'm calling you to grow in love. It's not preparing to endure stoically. It's not preparing to fight back. If anything, preparing for persecution is preparing to turn the other cheek is preparing to answer evil with good. It is preparing so that when we are tested, we do not revile others, but instead we love those who curse us. In other words, 
don't use this time to prepare to resist. Use this time to prepare to love. And that's the hard thing, that when you contemplate real suffering, real persecution, real martyrdom, I don't know about you, but as a 21st century American, when I hear stories of the persecuted church, I think of it more in terms of like the horror and the injustice. Like, how could things like that happen? Something's gone wrong. He says, yeah, something has gone wrong. It's, it's called sin. And this is now the way of the world, a reality from which you've been sheltered by grace. It may not always be that way, so prepare. Prepare to love even when tested. Prepare to rejoice in the Lord, even though you are reviled for it. Prepare to love the truth, even when you are the target of lies. Prepare to bless those who curse you, because that's how Christ lived. Because Christ, if you try to sum up what it is he did, he blessed those who cursed him. He sanctified and died for and saved those who persecuted him. Those who were at war with him, he made peace through the blood of his cross. We're preparing to follow after him so that when we are tested, we can respond as Jesus did. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.